This is Pod Forsaken. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Pod Forsaken. I'm Rodney Altman. I'm Missy Levin. I'm Chris Sachs. Thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest, director and writer Richard Shepard and producer. Yay! Welcome, Richard. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm happy to be here. It's so cool. Thank you for joining us. Do you, first of all, I always ask, do you prefer Richard or Rich or what do you go by? Richard is 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 preferred. Awesome. Yes. Uh, My nickname is Salty. So if we get to <laughs> know each other, you're welcome to call me that awesome. <laughs> Why salty? Yeah. Because uh, a friend years ago was making fun of how old I was at the time, which is funny because it was like 20 years ago. But <laughs> he's like, you're a salty old dog. And I appreciated that nickname and it is stuck. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so. <laughs> well, I, I'm personally getting up there. We we've, we've go back about 20 minutes and I got to say, I have to get orthotics now. <laughs> I just, I feel like an old man. Like the body's it happens, breaking down. It happens to the best of us. I remember being in high school, it was like, would make fun of those people. Now I regret it. Yeah, I'm I'm actually the oldest member of the of the podcast, and I feel like you're giving them ideas for new nicknames for me. That's true. <laughs> He's salty. You got to come up with something different. <laughs> salty so, West Side. You could be Salty West Side. Oh, that's good. That's that's yeah. like a full name. That sounds yeah. pretty cool, yeah. actually. It sounds like a that, porn, porn, little porn name. Now you have a name for your mixtape. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yo, have you heard Salty West Side? Yeah. You got to check this out. It's very cool. <laughs> it's all just Bruce Springsteen songs. Yeah. <laughs> you don't grasp the concept of a mixtape. <laughs> it's right. not, it's just an album. Yeah, yeah. correct. So first, uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, but obviously you wrote and directed The Perfection on Netflix. And so we are obviously going to spoil a lot of that during this conversation. So if you are listening and you haven't seen that movie, probably go watch that first because it's so cool. If you don't, you could also just go back and listen to our episode where we walk through the whole thing. <laughs> if, you, if you don't care about those things, then stay on board. But fair warning to everyone. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard to actually have a real conversation about that movie without spoiling it. Which, <laughs> yes. which, yeah. which proved difficult when we were trying to promote it I'm because sure. we wanted people to watch it yeah. when it you know dropped on Netflix. And you have to tell them something so that they'll watch. But we, as soon as we started telling them any plot, we're like, well, we've just destroyed like major things major twists yeah. and stuff like that but one of the reasons we ended up being excited about selling our movie to netflix was because we knew that netflix wouldn't have to advertise the movie the same way a normal movie is advertised and we had a real fear that if we went with a sort of normal theatrical distribution we would be excited about that obviously because there's something to be said about that in a major way but they would have to reveal more mm -hmm. in order to get people to pay money to see it and with netflix people feel like it's free even though they are obviously paying monthly fee it's just sort of there mm -hmm. so it's a different mindset and we were kind of one of the reasons we got excited about selling the movie to netflix was we thought they could get people to watch it without having to reveal the plot twists which are so much of what the movie is absolutely mm. Yeah, that's every time we are reviewing a trailer now, we're complaining about how they give away the whole movie. And yeah, the more you watch trailers, the more you start to you subtly you can actually see the whole movie playing out. Like we talked about, they give away so much because they are. I mean, every film company is like in free fall and freaking out about the business we're in, and how do you get people to actually spend money to see a non-Avengers movie? Mm -hmm. And they feel like they have to they have to show everything. So they'll give away major twists at the end of the movie. They'll show who a bad guy is. They'll they'll do it. They'll 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 muck muck it up in a way because but they don't care. They're like, we'd rather do that and get 
people to see the movie than preserve what what is sort of essential of a movie. Right. Apropos of that, I just saw that what, global box office or U.S. box office was down almost five percent. It's huge. It's huge. Mm. It's contracting. Oh wow! It's, it's crazy because of like when you take into account how big of a year like Disney had, you would think those numbers would be slightly up even. But guess. Well, there are these movies that are making a billion dollars and a billion dollars and a billion dollars, but the sort of mid-level movies that sort of, you know, slowly, you know, this one makes 75 and this one mm-hmm. makes 85, those don't exist anymore. So it's either a billion or 20 million. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so that's, that is constricting the thing. And when Disney has bought Fox now, that's a whole not that's a whole major distribution chain that is just gone. Yep. So it is, it is. An interesting time for movie lovers because there's a lot to see, but it's tough also because a lot of these sort of more interesting movies could get lost in this world that we live in where only the biggest movies get attention and then you have to sort of seek out and find, you know, it's a miracle when a a parasite works, you know, and that movie's made 20 million. It's going to make probably 30 by the time it's done in America and it's done 100 million overseas. I mean, that's a humongous hit. But those are miracle movies, you know, there's a lot of movies being made that are quite good that no one is seeing at all. Yeah, that's actually the the reason we do the podcast is specifically to tell people about movies they might not have seen because they didn't get a theatrical release. Yeah. Because, like, as I always say, like, I don't need to tell you that It Chapter 2 came out, right? <laughs> yeah. You're aware. <laughs> yes. But, like, you might not know about, like, was it Norwegian, Thelma, you know? Yeah, or, or So many good horror movies, just no one's ever heard of. Yeah. yeah. And The Perfection as well, which obviously yeah. was very heavily advertised on Netflix when it came out. Right. So if you have Netflix, you've probably at least seen the trailer for it. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember watching the trailer and being like, the, so much of the trailer is just that one scene where, with the, the meat, meat cleaver. Yeah. <laughs> and based on that, I was like, I'm in. <laughs> But uh, you're right. I kept thinking if this had to be a theatrical trailer, how would you ever cut it? Well, they cut a, a longer tra- the, the the trailer they released was actually supposed to be the teaser trailer, mm. and then they were going to release a longer trailer. Mm. And I they were very nice in including me in the marketing, and they showed me the teaser trailer, and I had some notes, but I was really excited and I thought it was great. And then they showed me sort of the more traditional trailer, and it was very well cut. But I'm like, you've ruined the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you've ruined the entire experience. We now know Stephen Weber is a bad guy. We now know that Allison is both good guy and bad guy like you're you've 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 ruined it and and they were like we agree it's we don't know what to do i'm like just don't release it like just use the teaser trailer it's going to get a lot of buzz and and traction in the community that we want to Mm -hmm. go to and we can still preserve a majority of what makes the film and a lot of people think the teaser trailer gave away too much anyway but Mm -hmm. but it 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 got people to watch you know and that was that was that was the key yeah one of the things i found most interesting about it and i think you've talked about this in interviews is just how many different genres this blends together. And if you just watch the teaser, you're like, oh, this is like a psychological horror with some heavy gore. But it's so much more than that. Like if this movie were out during Blockbuster, every weekend, a different employee at Blockbuster would be putting it in a different section. <laughs> That's the greatest compliment I've ever heard. I could not appreciate that more. Yeah, no, we would we, we would joke like, well, this section's an erotic thriller and this section's like a deep drama and this section is body horror and this section is suspense and this section, you know, I happen to be a fan of movies that give you more than just one thing, you know? And I think anyone who loves movies is. It doesn't mean that you have to like be throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. If you were telling a story that theoretically works, the idea of mixing different things into it makes it fun because the audience is sort of on the edge, you know, where 
what keeps people interested if you don't have major movie stars or incredible special effects or uh, or, or or a piece of material that people know? So this is an original piece of material. How are we going to keep people interested? You know, and 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 that that's part of the goal and part of the challenge and sort of what I think makes the perfection work. If you like the perfection, is that it's 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 a lot of different movies, and yet at the end of the film, you feel like it actually is one of a whole. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, a common thing is whenever we whenever a movie is set in a strict genre, we are so we speak the language of film so well now as a society that you kind of know what's expected of that genre. And so when a movie like Perfection or Parasite keeps shifting, that's why it's so engaging because you're like, I have no clue what's going to happen. That's right. If it was just a strict horror movie, you'd kind of know all the beats ahead of time. Right. And if it was a strict listen, you know, the Perfection fits into like a category. It's like. If you want a movie that opens, a horror movie that opens and makes thirty million the first weekend and whatever, it's got to be geared for much younger people. It's got to be a simpler premise. It's got to give you like the exact amount of shocks and scares that people want, and that's fine. And those movies work and are fun and successful. If you're trying to do something else, it becomes a trickier situation. You don't have as much money to make the movie with. You're not necessarily guaranteed to get as much money in the box office. I know that if The Perfection was released theatrically, it would not have gotten nearly the amount of eyes that got to see it on Netflix, not even remotely close. So that's the new, that's a good thing for us as film goers. We just have to seek it out. We have to go listen to podcasts like yours. We have to, to like do some research or work, but there's great movies out there. They're just not necessarily going to reach everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we live in a world where we just talked about underwater on a previous episode. How is that? I haven't seen it. I like the trailer. It's a good time. I think we all enjoyed it to various degrees. I was the biggest fan. I think Chrissy below me and then Chris below that, but you know, it, it's exactly what you think it is. Literally exactly but, what you think right, right. Yeah. That doesn't, like, if you go in, you're like, I, I'm here to watch people underwater get attacked by monsters. Right. It gives you that, right? But that movie... Was it like... It felt a little bit like Crawl in some way. I loved yeah, Crawl. I compared it to Crawl. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't think it was crawl. as fun as Crawl. It's, yeah. That's true. It doesn't have like the playful vibe. Yeah. It's but. a lot more like intellectual. Mm. And so I think that kind of bogs down it's a really, really big, good performance. It should be a tentpole movie. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Kristen Stewart's amazing. Yes. I know. But the reason I bring it up She's is awesome. like it stars Kristen Stewart and like they cost, they spent between 50 and $80 million on it and it tanked. And yeah. We like, there was a time 20 years ago when that movie would have been like a July release. You right. Know? And even mm-hmm. movies like that are struggling with the Well, people play. can smell if a movie's not good. I swear to God, there's just something. We, we can no longer have the wool pull over our eyes. There's just something, whether it's the Twitterverse, whether it's just the thing, you can sense when a movie isn't, isn't great. And you can also sense when people find a movie that is great and they want to share it. So I think Paramount didn't have a lot of faith in Crawl. And I think the end reason it ended up doing pretty well was that people saw it and we're like, you know what, this is really good and we're going to help share that, you know, and I think that's good. I think that's good for us as film goers, you know, that there is a sense that you, a community can help guide you to stuff that's cool. Yeah. And I, I think there's so much more opportunity for rediscovery of stuff, which is just so invigorating because it's like, like you said, I think if The Perfection came out on in theaters, it probably would not have performed as well, but it would have been on lists that are like, here's like 10 great horror movies you didn't see in the last right. five years. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's pluses and minuses to Netflix or going direct to streaming because you somehow get 
disregarded as a movie in quotes. Mm. You're a streaming movie, you know, and that's not fair to, I mean, first of all, we made The Perfection independently. It was an independently made movie. So that means it's a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even if we had made it for Netflix direct to streaming, it would have still been a movie. There would have been people showing up every day. You know, there would have been breakfast in the morning. We would have shot for 12 hours. We'd go in edit room and cut it. Like it's a movie. And, and, and the way you, the way people perceive things is a little, you know, the New York Times just this year started reviewing straight to streaming movies, but mm-hmm. they're not doing every single one. So we were actually nervous whether the New York Times, not that anyone really cares except my mother, but like, <laughs> but you know, will the New York Times review this movie? Will it be treated like a movie? You know, and they did and it was great review, but it was also like, why am I even thinking this? It's a movie. It should be, it should be treated as a movie and reviewed just because it's streaming doesn't mean, you know, and Netflix obviously has certain movies they release to get awards and they put them into theaters, but that's not their main business. They're not making in, they're losing money on all the theatrical releases they're doing. They're just mm-hmm. spending money. They're not getting back. That's just trying to get awards for, for them and getting filmmakers to want to work with them. Right. To qualify. Yeah. So we also like on this podcast, like, you know, we obviously talk about your project, but like you have a background in comedy. Mm -hmm. How how did you get into horror? That's a great question. I mean, a lot of my movies before this, The Matador and Dom Hemingway, they were black comedies and dark black comedies. There wasn't really a lot of horror in my background. I did this pilot of the show called Salem, which was... Mm-hmm. Which, I love Salem so much. Thank you. I was going to ask So that. that was like a, a real step into the horror genre. And Brandon Bragg and Adam Simon, who did that show, were horror nuts. And, you know, they made me watch a lot of movies. And we talked a lot about horror. And I certainly had always loved horror movies as a kid. You know, it wasn't a genre I wasn't interested in. I saw everything. So, you know, I knew a lot of the movies that we were talking about, but it really to actually do it was interesting because I'd never done it before. But I never thought that I would do a horror movie myself. It just never occurred to me. And then, you know, like two and a half years ago, I was just thinking about like, what movie do I want to make? And I'm like, you know, the, the section of the perfection when they're on the bus and Logan Browning is getting sick. For 10 years, I've thought about this scene. I'm like, what would it be like to be in a foreign country on a bus with someone who not only was getting sick, like puking and shitting, but also mentally sick and you, no one spoke the language and what do you do? And I've been trying to like, and it wasn't like, I want to make a horror movie. I'm like, that's an incredible sequence. What movie can I build around it? Mm. And I've been trying and trying for 10 years. I would try start to write it. I've written that sequence for years, wow. drafts after drafts after different characters of two guys, a guy and a girl, you know, it's in Mexico, like a million different versions. And I finally was like, you know, this is too good for me to just sit here and never actually finish. And uh, my friends, Eric Carmelo and Nicole Snyder, who I co-wrote The Perfection with, had written this show, created the show called Ringer with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, my wife acting opposite. misses that show so much. She was such a huge fan. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sarah Michelle Gellar. <laughs> and Sarah Michelle Gellar said, and she's right, she got to act opposite her favorite actress. Um, uh, but uh, I went to Eric and Nicole because I knew that they, they had been working on Supernatural and I knew that they had a horror, they were interested in horror. And I'm like, guys, I don't know what this movie is, but here's the secret. And I pitched them the sequence and they were like, that's amazing. I'm like, I know. And they were like, we're going to come up with a movie. And we basically shut the door and three months later had the perfection. You know, we we, we sort of reverse engineered it in a way. And it's strange because I never really looked at the perfection as a horror movie. I knew there were horror elements in it. To me, it was a thriller Mm. with horror elements, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was very influenced 
by Park Chan-wook, Park, you know, his, the old boy and the handmaiden are incredible movies. I love Korean cinema in general, but I love them because they turn left and right. You have no idea what the movie is going to be. And every time it switches, you're like, there's no way this can make sense. And it does. So they're also very beautiful and they're also very sort of deep you know, and so we kind of approached, the, I showed those movies to Eric and Nicole, and then we sort of like, how can we make an Americanized version of a Korean movie? So and, it really does. And, yeah. and, and I was like, I want to have these twists happen where the audience will go, there's no fucking way this is ever going to tie together. And then when it does, you're like, wow, that's cool. And that was directly, so so when you ask, how did I get into horror? In a way, it was, it was not in a normal way. I didn't set out to, we didn't sit down and go, we're going to make a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And and I'm thrilled that people in the horror community have embraced the film, most of them, not all of them, but a lot of people have, because it does work as that. You know, it is, it is, but it's not nearly as scary as other movies are. It's not nearly as gory as other movies are. It's not nearly even as out there as other movies are. It is its own, it lives its, in its own ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think... St- uh, having the kernel of an idea come from just a visual sequence or image, it always makes me think of maybe this is Hollywood folklore, but James Cameron says that the Terminator came from a fever dream of him imagining a man appearing naked from a sphere of light. Right. Oh, really? And then we got the Terminator. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ideas come from very strange places, you know. And I always I, I think a lot of the best movies come from an inspiration that isn't necessarily the whole movie. But just something that you want to explore, you know, some element, something that is interesting to you and you, you kind of can't stop thinking about it. You know, yeah. so it's I think I think people think that screenwriters sit down and are like, OK, I've got this entire idea for a movie now just in front of me and I'm going to start typing. You know, it's not like that at all. Inspiration comes from the weirdest places. Yeah, I've, I've heard a couple of people, you know big screenwriters that'll say like, yeah, it's usually like you're tearing your heart out of your chest and trying to write something with the blood. But then <laughs> you, you hear some people that are like, yeah, this is just sat down for a week and I wrote it. And like, no, you didn't. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't, I never believe any of that. Although I do think that sometimes you can write very quickly if, yeah. if you're inspired, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be, it's painful, but it also doesn't have to be painful. I also had not written with a partner in years, in like over a decade. So sitting with Eric and Nicole was amazing because we had like a mini writer's room. There were three of us, you know, so especially a movie like this, we could we could say, no, yes, no, what about this? And we never kind of let, let being stuck. If I had tried to write that movie, I did try to write that movie by myself. I couldn't do it. I needed, I sort of needed other people to, mm-hmm. to, to help me. Did either of the people you write it with, you wrote it with, have a background as a child athlete or musician? No, we were really another movie that inspired us was this documentary called The Keepers. I don't know if you've seen it. it's on it's on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really and dark. it's, a, you know, it's about the sort of church covering up mm-hmm. some some really bad stuff that happened there. And it was that was the subject I was really interested in, this idea of like um, a bigger thing, a bigger a, a bigger um, society or not society, but a bigger like like the church covering up pedophiles. Yeah. You know, and just sort of saying we're going to shove them to another church, and and it's and in a way, I I I hate the church more than I hate the pedophiles. Mm-hmm. Even obviously, I have no sympathy for these pedophiles, but they're sick. The church is making a, a dis- 
a decision to move. That's a different thing. That's that's far more evil. And, you know, this sort of right when we started making the perfection, the whole U.S. gymnastics team thing came out and obviously the Harvey Weinstein thing came out. So we were we were right on the edge of all of this stuff. But we were inspired by the keepers and the idea that that we wanted to create this music academy, this idea of this perfect place that was continuing this cycle of abuse. Mm -hmm based on the idea of, you know, people being sick, you know, trying to to reach perfection. And I know that young people who are into gymnastics or music, you know, their lives are upended sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and very few of them become professional musicians or professional athletes. And what is the psychological damage of all of that pressure on them? And then you add to that a sexual element, a deviant element, and it becomes far, it becomes really interesting. So in a way, when we were writing The Perfection, what got us really excited was at a certain point, we're like, you know, the bus sequence still is amazing. And it's probably the highlight of the movie from a visceral, like filmmaking standpoint. But the rest of the stuff's really cool. Like we built a story around it that felt as cool as that sequence that got us inspired. And that got us really happy. We're like, holy shit, this is really, it's it's provocative as, as hell, but it's pretty, it's pretty cool, you know? I think you did an amazing job getting that across. It felt really authentic. I was an elite gymnast oh. in my life. Like, starting at three years old. And I mean, it was my whole life. And it really felt so truthful more than anything. Mm. I've watched the way it came across on the screen with just the parents kind of almost turning a blind eye, just being so eager to put their children in these situations and being just an object to the coaches. And it it really struck a chord with me. Like yeah. I was emotional for like a while after I watched it. Um, Thank you. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm glad that you had that reaction that yeah. I've heard that from people who who were kids who were put in situations yeah. of, and it's, it is fascinating how we as a society almost turn a blind eye to like big flashing red lights, mm-hmm. you know, to try and get our kids to succeed or whatever. And kids aren't built to, to, to talk about things. So if they're being abused, they're not, they're not, it's not wired for them to say I'm being abused. You know, they put, they internalize it. They blame themselves the whole thing. So it's very interesting. And obviously like a serious subject matter, which is one of the things why, you know, Nicole and Eric and myself and our producer, Stacy, we really like this was serious material in a genre movie. Mm-hmm. We really wanted to do by, right by it. And then we were helped a lot that Allison Williams, who starred in it, who was my friend because I work with her on the show Girls, she is basically a producer as an actor. She there wasn't one line of this script that was not like talked about for hours. And we worked the hell out of it with her to make sure that we weren't being exploited exploitative, that we were being true to these characters. And then when Logan Browning came on, she was, she's an African-American actress. The part wasn't written for black actor or white actor. It was just, she was the best person for that role. And she came in and she's like, I have a lot of things to say about this because I don't want it to feel like a white savior movie. And I don't want to feel like the, you know, and so this, these actors coming in and feeling emboldened because we all asked them to be, to share their opinions. I'm not a young woman. I'm not a 23 or 24 year old woman. So Allison and Logan had to help me with a lot of that stuff, but they also helped me with a lot of other stuff so that by the time we were done and they were in the editing room too, we felt, we felt, I felt pretty confident. I knew this was going to be some tricky material and some people have really responded to it. And some people have been 
have a visceral negative reaction to it. I knew that I was coming in it from the best place that I could, which was really important. You know, I do think that we as artists have to understand that whatever we're saying can affect people. And we can't just, you know, even in the most, you know, there's some people who will like, I will never watch a rape revenge movie, Mm -hmm. period. I disagree with that theory. I don't want to see a rape movie that is just having an exploitative rape. I have no interest in that. But I think rape revenge movies are fascinating. The movie Revenge last year was fucking great. You know, there that is part of our history, horror history and thriller history is is rape revenge movies. But again, we didn't set out to make a rape revenge movie. We, we set out to tell a story about these characters and what they ended up, the revenge they ended up getting felt in our minds that we hadn't been exploitative getting to that point. And B, we wanted them to see fuck get fucking revenge on that guy. You know, it was, I was, I felt really good about it. You know, it, it hit my buttons yeah, for me. I think a lot of people that have been traumatized like that don't get to get that revenge. So it was really satisfying to imagine myself, you know, getting right. that revenge. And it like inspired me to talk with my mom about some stuff. Right. I, I really think it was very powerful. You did a great job. Oh, thank you so much. Sensitively. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely heavy subject matter. And uh, there were parts that made me squirm, definitely. Especially when you get to the, like, whatever you want to call it, the inner chamber. Yeah, like the, the, the chapel. The chapel, right. Like, that whole sequence, oh, I was so on the edge of my seat. And I was like, I'm getting weird vibes here. Like, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm feeling so, And then, like, when Stephen Weber, like, walks into frame naked and he's like, play the perfection. I'm like, what is happening? Where, what is going on with this movie? And then I was We said of, that like, on the set when Stephen Weber came out naked on the set. We're like, what is happening? That, that was wasn't in the script. Far more, far more horrific than anything else. Um, but to this day, uh, I, to this day, I just, you know, came out last year. But <laughs> I, uh, I occasionally find myself talking to someone, I'll be like, play the perfection. Yeah. <laughs> And if I haven't seen the movie, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, anyway, it's just like, I can't, I can't stop thinking about that line, you know? But there's, yeah, there's a lot of great little touches. I, I know Chris pointed out, I can't, I missed this the first time I watched it. The part where she's playing and she misses the note and the frame like judders, yeah. mm-hmm. jitters, whatever the term would be. Uh, and I caught it on the second viewing. It's like, that's a good touch. Was that, did you put that in the script or was that like a, a That was a post-production okay. thing because we, I, I treat post-production like writing. I feel like it's, 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 it's an incredibly creative, it's being on a film set is, is nothing but pain because you're running out of time from the moment you've had your first sip of coffee, you're two hours behind it just happened so the whole day is like how can i get the best version of what i want in the hours that i have and i love it because i get to work with actors and everything like that but it's tough but editing is a you're in a room with one other person and you can just go down avenues and have like writing you can write something do something you don't like it you throw it away you can experiment and I love the editing process to me is deeply a deeply creative place in which you can switch things around, change the order. Fi- we ended up doing some research, which I'm happy to tell you about based on what we were editing. But in that case, we have this sequence where if she makes a wrong note, bad things are going to happen. And she made the bad note. And when we showed it to people, like I'd have 10 people over to the edit room, everyone's like, we didn't know that she made a bad note. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, but that's a really bad note. <laughs> then we would like make the note like so bad. And then people were like, well, that's ridiculous. How could uh, she make a note that bad? And we're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And then I, I was like, what if the frame shook, you know, maybe that subliminally, you know, it won't be, most people won't catch it, but if you do catch it with the mixed note, maybe it would work. And that was something we just tried, you know, we blew up the frame 10% mm-hmm. and then that gave us some room to, mm-hmm. to wiggle it. And, and it, and it was like, oh yeah, this is yeah. cool. And even if it doesn't help anyone understand it for us, it was cool, you know? 
Yeah, hmm. I um both times I watched it, I I cannot hear where she plays the wrong note. Yeah. So clearly, <laughs> I don't have an ear for that. But based on his reaction, I'm like, I I trust that Stephen Weber knows. Yeah. She screwed up. Yeah. It was something that we hadn't even really thought of until we started. You know, like we all understood that that was a wrong note. But like, if you don't know music, you don't really know. But we yeah. landed it. It was fine. It's always so interesting because it's like you write it, you shoot it, you have this idea of what's coming down the pike, and then you show it to people, and we're like, I don't know what's happening. Right. Okay, (laughs) you got to figure it out. So, well, you have to be open to it's like when you're a writer, you have to be open to people reading your script and they have no idea what the movie's about. So having someone read a script more than once are kind of useless, you know, unless they're like your closest confidant who can really. But usually you want to give it to some fresh eyes. Like I've now done the work from the first set of notes. Will this new round of people have the same problem? And editing is much like that. Like I start showing a movie like week five of editing, knowing that I've got five more weeks of editing to go. So it's not some of it's really rough, but I know that the movie's in my mind, pretty much working. So now I need you to tell me, is it working? Are you confused? What are you confused about? Is Are you bored? What are you bored by? And you you never really know what people are going to say. You think you know, and then you ha- you show it to 10 people and you have a discussion afterwards and you're like, oh my God, they just missed the most major thing. I, I thought it was so obvious. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're, you, you reassess how you're approaching the film and, and all of that. I mean, when we uh, my movie, The Matador with Pierce Brosnan was a dark comedy, but when we were cutting it, people were laughing laughing so much more than I ever thought they would that we started just adding laugh. We added mm. jokes off camera. We shot we shot some whatever we could do because we, we could see that that was helping people process that movie. And with the perfection, there were a few plot things that we needed to fix. And we were trying through Band-Aids to do them. And at a certain point, we ended up having to, to reshoot something to, to, to clarify stuff. But I think that's part of the process. It's like doing a rewrite. You know, it's like if you're not open to what's not working at the Sometimes you get notes and they're like, I don't like this. And I will say, I like it. So fuck you. It's my movie. (laughs) But if I don't understand it is a different animal. Because if a majority of people aren't getting something or frustrated by something, then that's a problem. Right. Yeah. So if somebody comes with a qualitative judgment of like, I don't like this. Well, fuck yeah, you. This exactly. isn't for you. That's right. But if somebody goes, I didn't get that she plays the cello. Uh, you're like, yeah. ooh. <laughs> that's a problem. What did you have to reshoot? So in our, I don't know if you guys remember the, uh, near the end of the movie, there's this turn where you realize that Allison Williams and Logan are on the same team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're like, holy shit, I didn't see that coming. And then you flash back and you you realize that, that Allison uh, was at home and Logan came in and beat the shit out of her. And then afterwards they... They started talking and connected. And we had shot the movie without the sequence where she beats her up. Mm. She had just, she had, we had, we had shot a, we had shot a sequence where Logan had off camera processed what had gone on and had shown up already having processed it. Uh, and okay. people were like, I don't get why Logan is just talking to Alison Williams. She cut off her fucking hand. <laughs> like, I don't get it. And that was like, oh, right. You know, I get that. She has to sort of at least, beat the shit out of her for us to at least under accept that she is like a normal person. Uh-huh. And and it was it was we shot it in a day. We had very little money to do it. We shot it in L.A. and not in where where we shot the rest of the movie with a whole, basically a different crew. But we we got it and it really made a difference. It, it changed the film because now 
people weren't able to, in a way, enjoy the ending of the movie, which is a weird thing to say because the movie's so violent at the end, but people do enjoy that. <laughs> but people were having a hard time enjoying it because they were still processing the fact that they couldn't stand the idea that Logan just sort of accepted that this woman cut her hand off. And so by doing that, suddenly it changed the whole rhythm of the film. Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually rewatching parts of the movie. I, I noticed I just couldn't bring myself to rewatch the bus part. And I think that's because it's so visceral. Yeah. yeah. I think but, like we can all relate to that yeah. part. <laughs> um, but I rewatched that segment from basically Steven Weber naked to the end. Right. You just wanted to freeze frame on Steven Weber <laughs> naked. Yeah, yeah, that's actually my background. <laughs> <laughs> it's your screensaver. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I noticed that because I was like, wait, this is a double flashback. Because yeah. it flashes back on what happened, yep. then it flashes back to the her beating the yeah. shit out of her and the reveal <laughs> yeah. that they're working together. Yeah. As, that stuck out to me just on the second view. So Stuck out like, in a good or bad way, uh, or just as a neutral, way. neutral. Like, yeah. But just that um, it, on this show, we'll complain about dream sequences yeah. and how they're often like kind of a cheat. And so it's like interesting, a double flashback, and I didn't note it. So I think it was a good thing. Right. So it worked. Right. I mean, there's a lot of tricks that people use when they're getting desperate, you know, and and coming from independent film and always making movies independently, you have to figure out ways to fix things that don't always require a reshoot because you don't always have the money for a reshoot. Like we came in under budget enough on the shoot of our, this movie that we had enough money to do a reshoot. But, and sometimes you don't have that. So you have to figure out how am I going to fix this? Is it going to be narration? Is it going to be a dream sequence of like weird images that I can collect? I mean, you try many things to try and come up with a solution. And sometimes an audience who has no idea what the editing was will see something in the movie and go, this sucks, you know? <laughs> this seems like a Band-Aid and it sucks. And sometimes it just sucks because the filmmaker made a sucky decision. And sometimes it sucks because the filmmaker was desperately trying to fix something mm -hmm. and, and couldn't... You know, I mean, I hate the scenes where someone's having a nightmare and then they wake up in bed, you know, like... Yeah, I've done it. You know, it's like, I, I'm like, I hate it. I've done it, you know, so it, it happens, but... Um, there was one small editorial thing. I don't know if there's any significance to it, but when he catches up to her and she's running away in the chapel and he punches her and it cuts to red. Uh -huh. Was there any significance of that? Or like, was there an intentionality or it just looked cool? I wanted, I wanted to just give a signal that whatever fears you were having are now going to happen. Mm. Like here, here it is. Welcome to this new chapter of this fucking crazy story. And we had had a cut to black and that was what was in the script. It cuts to black and it was fine. And like it's somewhere in the editing, David, the editor and I were just like, we need to up the ante on this. And we went to red and it really did because it, it shocks you a little bit. Like, again, it kind of goes to like, how do you keep the audience interested? How do you right. keep them on the edge of your, well, you're not expecting that. So when it happens, you sort of, especially in our Netflix world where we're also, you know, emailing our friends or texting or ordering some delivery. Like, what are you going to do to like keep people mm. not doing that? Yeah. I've never seen a smash to red before. Yeah. It was, it was, we got excited when, we, when yeah. it worked. Yeah. It was very cool. So we also asked this, what was your first horror movie you saw? Well, one of the very first movies I ever saw was the original King Kong, which isn't quite a horror movie, but it is, there's some horrific elements to it. Mm -hmm. Sure, it counts. And, and my dad took me to a revival theater in New York to see it, and it really made an impression on me. Like, I was like, 
Paul, what is this? You know, and I think it certainly gave birth to my love of movies. You know, as when I when I was 12 years old, I already had decided I was not going to play third base for the New York Mets. Um, and I had to deal with the reality of what I wanted to do. I wasn't thinking about what I wanted to do, but I, I, I knew I loved movies and I was obsessed with King Kong and I wanted a super great camera so that I could do stop motion animation. And I started doing that at 12 years old. Mm. And and so King Kong really was influential. But then when I was in high school, I literally, I worked at a movie theater in New York. At that time in New York, if you worked in a movie theater, you could go, there was sort of an unwritten rule that you could go to any movie theater in New York and get in for free. That's awesome. So like, it was sort of like the usher's code of conduct. So you would go to to tell the usher, I work at this movie theater and they're like, come on in. And then you do the same to them. And so for basically two years, I, I saw like six movies a week. You know, I would go to movies after school. I would go to three movies on the weekend. It was the greatest thing in the world for a film nerd. And I saw everything. Uh, I joked that I saw Eric Romer's Pauline on the Beach and Blood Beach on the same day. <laughs> I saw every type of movie. So I saw a lot of horror movies because it was a very good time for, there was a lot of horror movies. They were all cheesy, most of them, but there were a lot of them I saw. But the one that really affected me, and I consider still having one of the biggest scares I've ever seen in a movie, was the original When a Stranger Calls. Mm. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the original, but uh, they remade it a few years ago. And it's basically about a, the, the first half of the, the first 20 minutes of the movie is this babysitter alone in the house with the kid. And then someone's calling saying, have you checked the children? Have you checked the children? And she's like eventually calls the police and like someone's calling and scaring me. And at the, the, that sequence ends with the, the person calling, have you checked the children? She hangs up and then the phone rings again. And she's like, stop fucking calling me. And on the other end is the police. And they're like, this is the police. The phone calls are coming from within the ah, house. Oh, it's very scary. Cute. So that was not what scared me. This is what scared me. So I just want to set this up that my there was a movie theater in New York at the time where if it was raining out, you could wait inside. There was like a waiting area. But we never really liked to wait. My buddy Mark and I never really liked to wait there because you could kind of hear the movie going. Mm. And we didn't want to like ruin a movie. But that day it was pouring rain. So I remember waiting in there and we got there like 20 minutes before the next showing, pouring rain. We can kind of hear the movie, but not a lot. And suddenly we hear the entire audience scream, the entire <laughs> audience scream. Someone runs out of the theater and pukes in the lobby. Oh, oh wow. That's and so cool. My friend Mark and I like looked at each other and probably high-fived. I don't even know, but we were like, what is going to happen? So we go see the movie and we already knew that it was, the beginning was scary because it's the, have you checked the children part? But, and that was scary. Then the movie gets boring for like 30 minutes. Then the killer who's been in an insane asylum for 10 years escapes and whatever. And he's come back to get this babysitter. Now she's an adult. As soon as this scene started, I knew this was the scene that had caused the scream. Like you just felt it. Like it was set up to be scary. He's escaped from the mental institution. <laughs> she's in bed with her husband. It's nighttime. And the be- the be- the the closet door to the in her bedroom starts to slowly open and you're like, Oh my God, he's in the closet <laughs> and it's slowly opening. And she's in bed with her husband and they're both sleeping. It's slowly opening. You're like, wake up. You have to wake up and it's slowly opening. And then just when the moonlight hits, so you can see what's in the closet, you, before you can see it, you can see the shape of a person and you're like, he's definitely there. It opens up just enough and the moonlight hits it. And you realize the person in there is her husband <gasps> oh. and he's in the bed. 
And that was a scream. And it, st- it stayed with me, you know, 30 something yeah. years later. I'm like, that's still the, one of the greatest horror moments. It's not supernatural. It's just fucking terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't puke at that time. But I, <laughs> being a teenager in a movie theater, seeing someone run out and puke may be the greatest advertisement ever for Absolutely. a film. <laughs> I like heard about that, but didn't know it actually happened. Yeah, I think most movie. people are familiar with the first 20 minutes. Which yeah. The calls are coming from inside yeah. the house. Yeah. But I, even I have never seen past that part. No. I feel like you just, there's a whole other movie <laughs> that happens. Other, and it's hard because the middle section is so boring. But then this, this thing. But anyway, you asked what horror yeah. movies, like those, the, King Kong and that movie definitely uh, stuck. And then as I got older, you know, I started Rosemary's Baby, which is sort of an, my favorite movie. It's, it's so good. And it's a movie that you can, it's one of those rare movies you can just watch. Whenever it's on, whenever you mm-hmm. feel like it, you're not bored for a second. You see something new every single time. Absolutely. And it's it's so confident in its storytelling that the horror is it it's it's slow burn. And you're just you're you're in the hands of filmmakers who know what they're doing. And so you're not it, it's it's a movie from 1969 or 68, and it still completely works today. So few movies from that era still work today. And that completely does. And you don't feel like it's slow. You don't feel anything. It's like, this is creepy. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what movies you watched to, before you started working on Salem, because that is one of the best examples of a TV show that really blends horror and drama perfectly. I feel like most horror shows are like, it's two different shows you're watching and it's cutting back and forth. And Salem did such a good job at just being a continuous show that was creepy the whole time and the horror stuff made sense to the plot. Well, I just did the pilot. I tend to do a lot of TV pilots, which is a great business as a director because yeah. you come in, you get to help cast it and set the look and the tone of the show. And then you don't have to do anything else and you still get checks. Yeah. So it's, a real, it's really, it's like a, it's like a tough business to get into, but if you can get in it, it's a really good one. <laughs> And so Adam and Brandon did that show. So everything you like about that show is what they did. Okay. But from coming from the pilot, you know, it, I wanted to, sh- this was sort of, we did this before The Witch came out and we did it before a lot of other stuff had been, I wanted to shoot it all natural firelight, and no movie lights. And for four days I did, and it was oh. the most beautiful thing in the world. And then the studio called me and they're like, well, so you're either fired or you start putting some more lights. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? It's the most, it's terrifying. You can't see anything. And they're like, I know it's a TV show. We have to see something. <laughs> I'm like, but it's so dark. It's so good. We watched a lot of, you know, we, for that one, the movie that we watched the most was Francis Coppola's Dracula. Mm. Because in Dracula. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about this uh, on a previous episode. They just used practical effects. And it was key for me and for Brandon and Adam to only use practical effects on Salem. So everything in that pilot is happening. The, the cockroaches on her were real cockroaches Whoa. on Je- Janet Montgomery. The, the sort of, there we did like a lot of sleight of hand things where Janet Montgomery goes to the mirror and we pan over and then you see a goat, like a creature there instead and mm-hmm. switching. We did everything live and that was what Coppola did on Dracula and that's what we intended and did do on the pilot. In the series, they didn't have as much time so they mm-hmm. did do some CGI stuff but for, for us, it was truly like part of what it was and on a pilot, you have like double the amount of time than you do on a normal episode. And so we could spend four hours doing something incredibly complicated where on a normal show you just couldn't do that. So that was like the main one. Plus that movie is 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 
so beautiful and creepy and weird the dracula i mean it suffers from keanu reeves <laughs> who i like as an actor but he's yeah. not great in that movie and but it's a it's an odd film and i wanted to make salem as odd as yeah you know as odd as we could you know it was it was a it was a real swing to do that show you know and and it was a, it was definitely fun i learned a lot you, you know? made witches feel real the way you yeah, yeah. It was, that up. <laughs> it was beloved by the witch community. Yeah. <laughs> which Mizzy is a giant part. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You want to talk about your new show? Just It just premiered. I just did a, well, it's funny. I finished The Perfection and it's like, what's, what's the exact opposite yeah. of The Perfection? I think I'll do a very bright, happy musical. So I just did a, a the pilot to a show called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which is showing on NBC and, you know, was about as much fun as you could possibly have doing mm. anything. It was real, you know, on a horror movie, you are dealing with like deeply dark stuff and you laugh a lot and whatever, but it's dark and, you know, it, it can affect you. Zoe's was, it was I mean, it's there's some dramatic elements to it too, but it was a musical. You know, we had the choreographer from La La Land. Mm. It was just, it was a dream. It was super fun. And as a filmmaker, you look really good when you do a musical number. It's like <laughs> you have a really good choreographer, mm. really good dancers, good camera person. The director looks really great and they're doing very little. <laughs> and I'm like, that works fine for me. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's it's really good if you if you're interested in that stuff. There, it's 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 interesting. And Jane Levy, who's done a lot of horror movies, yes. stars in it, and she's delightful. Her. Rodney's favorite movie of the decade was the Evil Dead remake. Yeah, yeah. I just read about it. You know, I've not seen it, but I just read because. Because I'm now friends with Jane from that experience, and some website was talking about how that movie was their favorite movie of the year, of that year, or this decade, mm. or whatever. And I'm like, I gotta see it. It's Rodney. Yeah. It's um, uh, first of all, again, all practical effects, with the exception of like, there's one person who's lit on fire at one point. I think that there's some CG there that's pretty obvious. But the rest of the movie, the raining to... blood was practical. Yeah, that's a practical wow. effect. They, oh, cool. They um, they they had to shoot it like 95 percent in sequence because of how much fake blood they used. That's funny because it could just they it's couldn't clean it up. That... <laughs> it is definitely maybe one of the like I I tell everyone it's so gory. I'm surprised it got released theatrically. You know. But it's also just a really, it's a really good movie. Like again, it, it has its. Every movie has some things that. All right, I'm gonna watch you know. it today. All right, all right. <laughs> I'll, I'll let, let you know. I'll let you know. Email me. Are you talking about? No, no, no. I, I just was thinking I should see it because I want to see it anyway. But. To be fair, just on Twitter, I saw some random person post. Let me tell you, like the Evil Dead remake is one of the most bore, boring and no. poorly written things I've ever seen. And I was like, opinions, man. Right? Yeah. Yep. I disagree, but yeah. You're gonna find someone who hates something. Yeah. No matter what. I, yeah. It's just the world we live in, you know? I always say, like, even if you make the thing you are dying to make and it turns out perfectly, you sit back and you're like, I love it. It's perfect. Someone's going to watch and be like, I hate it. Well, with The Perfection, we started getting reviews and we started getting really some really good reviews and we were kind of writing a wave of really good reviews. And then this website that I like, The Playlist, reviewed the movie. It gave it an F. Wow. And complained and suggested that I'd never met a woman in my life. Huh. And I was like, an F? Like, that's not, that's like, that's no, an F. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, that's not like a B minor. B yeah. minor, it's an F. And she just hated the movie and clearly hated me. And <laughs> it was like one of those things where you're like, you know what, that's, I'm actually okay with it. Because it's so, she clearly missed everything on this film. So what can I do? You know, and then, so it is, you're going to have people who love and hate your work. It's just part of what you do. And you have to, you have to build up a real wall to be able to deal with it. Some people can't read reviews. You certainly can't. If you're getting good reviews, you can't let it go to your head because mm -hmm. you can find a bad review. One of my very first things I ever did, 
I did this movie in 1991. I was 25 and David Bowie was in it. It was called The Linguini Incident. Yeah, I wanted to ask about it. It's a romantic a good title. It's yeah. a romantic <laughs> comedy that wasn't very romantic or funny, but it was <laughs> it and it was taken away from me. It was a horrible experience other than getting to work with David Bowie. But the review in the San Francisco Chronicle, I'll never forget. We got we actually got a good review in the LA Times and New York Times, but there was the riots going on that weekend. So no one got their newspapers delivered. It was a very strange thing. So no one could read the good reviews. My girlfriend at the time who I co-wrote the movie with lived in San Francisco. We drove up to San Francisco and we got there and the review in the San Francisco Chronicle, usually they have someone st- standing ovation, someone sitting up in their chair excited, someone sitting in their chair kind of bored, and then someone asleep in the chair. <laughs> That's their reviews. And this review was an empty chair. <laughs> and then it, com- it complained about how many trees were destroyed printing the script. So that's my favorite review I've ever gotten. It's like, isn't it when you read a, like a restaurant review on Yelp and it's like one star and it's like, couldn't find parking. And right. Like, Dude, like, well, tell me about the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like working with David Bowie? I- I'm sometimes asked what movie I would like to remake. Is there any movie ever in the history of, because we make so many people remaking. And I'm like, yeah. if I ever could remake a movie, I would just remake The Linguini Incident. Uh. I would remake it with the same script, same cast, same everything. I would just know what I was doing. I was 25. We didn't have a producer. Our producer was MIA. And I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I went to film school. I thought I knew how to direct, but I didn't know how to direct. And so that movie got away from me in a way it would never get away from me now. It taught me a lot of things about how to deal with actors and how to get through situations and how to play the politics of the movie business. So there's a huge amount of politics and a huge amount of ego. And part of your job as a filmmaker is to navigate that, is to make sure that the people financing your movie and producing your movie feel as much as it's their movie as it is your movie, because if they do, then you have the power, ultimately, even if you don't have Final Cut, you have the power to control your film. Mm-hmm because they understand that we're all trying to make the best movie. And in this case, Linguini Incident was a really tough experience. I mean, I literally cried on set one day. Like the idea of that now boggles the mind, but I was so in the weeds with no one helping at all. Um, that said, David Bowie was lovely. He was like, one of, <laughs> he was one of the bright lights of the whole thing. I couldn't believe he agreed to be in this little movie. We sent him the script, like as a joke, almost thinking, uh. asking him to play a tiny part. We sent it to him and Mick Jagger. And we're like, there's a few, the, the part ended up being played by Buck Henry, who just passed away and mm-hmm. Andre Gregory. But we sent it, there was these two guys who ran a restaurant. We sent it to David Bowie just on a lark. And then we heard back and he's like, David Bowie liked to meet, he'd like to play the lead. And we're like, Whoa. oh my God. Uh. So that's a great story. It should have ended in the best possible way, but it uh, it was tough. But, you know, I did get to hang out with David Bowie and go see some music with him and talk about music with him and certainly learn what a... Uh, I learned from him the best attitude of an actor, which is on set all the time, even when they're not working, never in their trailer, pleasant to everyone, in a great mood, prepared and funny. <laughs> that was him. That's awesome that makes to hear. me so happy to hear. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You've been making movies for a long time. They're, they're yeah. all over the place in terms of tone and genre. You're right. Linguini Incident is different than Dom Hemingway and different than The Perfection. Yeah. 
Is there a reason you like to you choose to jump around like that? Do you like just telling new stories or? I think I would have done really well in the 1940s studio system in Hollywood, like <laughs> where they just give you a different script each each time. And I like to do things I haven't done before. I like to I like to try new things. I think that it keeps me interesting. For me, keeps me interested and makes my stuff interesting. I don't, I, you know, I think that at the end of the day, certainly in the last, since The Matador, I think you can look at my work and you can say, well, his movies have a visual style. His movies have at least an authoritative voice. There's a real voice there. They're different. Things are different, but they are it, it, it is sort of like, what's interesting to me today? You know, two, three years ago, I made a short film in Tokyo, a love story with Elizabeth Moss. You know, that was about as opposite as anything I've ever done. I'd never done sort of a straight ahead love story. And I really wanted to do it. And, and... You can see it on HBO Go if you want. Oh, it's cool. called Tokyo Project. We'll check it out. Um, it's a 30-minute short, but it's 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 about as opposite as anything. But like my doing that really informed so many things. It helped me in so many ways by doing that, you know. So it it, 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 it affected the way I approached doing love scenes and sex scenes and all of this other stuff. And that trickled down to the perfection in the way we approached how we shot the sex scene. On, on that Tokyo Project, I said, I mean, this was a short film and... Lizzie Moss was getting nothing to do it, like basically doing it for free for a trip to Tokyo. And um, <laughs> we were doing a sex scene and, and, and she's like, what are you going to do? And I talked to her about it and I said, listen, here's what we're going to do. But here's what I'm also going to do is you're going to come into the editing room and anything you don't want is not going to be in the movie. And that's the same thing I did with Alice and, and Logan on The Perfection. I'm like, we're going to shoot this scene in a way that makes you comfortable with the tiniest crew possible and also in which you are in full control of whatever you want to do. And also you're going to come in the editing room and you can frame fuck this to death. You can get rid of this frame or that frame or you don't like. And it's amazing that that level of empowerment to an actor who suddenly is like, well, I can go for it a little bit more because I know that I'm not going to get exploited down the road. You know, so for Allison coming in the editing room and like there's this one frame where I think my you know, cheek looks weird. You're like, it's gone. Or what Logan, like, hey, can you get rid of that? Like, it, it's amazing. And it doesn't affect the movie. You know, they're not saying cut the whole scene. You know, they're coming in. So I learned that from being able to do Tokyo Project. So I think one of the reasons I like to do different genres is if you do different things, it informs your whole way of thinking. And then later when you're doing sort of another project, you've learned from that. I would never have known how to do that. And the sex scene and the perfection, which I'm really proud of, I don't think really would have been as good if I hadn't done that. Hmm. I think you so just cool. gave Chris a new favorite saying frame fucking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've known that. Oh, you've heard frame fucking? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I thought you made it up. No, yeah, I think you made it up too. All right. <laughs> yeah, I worked um, in post for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar with frame fucking. We've all frame fucked a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was in college. I was experimenting with <laughs> <laughs> a few frames. I fucked right? a few frames. <laughs> it happens. Um, I have one, one more question I want to ask about the perfection. Just like a nerdy technical question. How do you pull off the, like, the effect where like, uh, Allison Williams' arm gets stabbed and like ripped through. Like it seems like is that a combination of practical awesome. and CG? That's really a visceral moment. Yeah, it's like, pretty cool. As I mentioned, I'm a gore hound, so yeah. moments like that, I'm like, yeah. Like, well, there was... wasn't a lot of gore in that movie. That was one of the. That's, that was definitely gory. You're right. It is fairly gore light. It's gore light, but that one is you know tough. We that's a combination of practical and visual effects. Like we had half of a blade so she had something in her hand that she could put onto his arm but it then the the knife coming out of the arm uh. and then all the blood was was visual effects so but interestingly enough in the original version of the movie Allison's arm gets 
stabbed. And in the final sequence, her arm is sort of still on, mm. but it's just dead. Oh, like and that's how we shot it. And people weren't quite getting it. And so we, you know, we were like, we need to make it more vicious and we need her to lose her arms so that we can have them both without arms because yeah. it's such a more visual and cool ending. But that was another thing where we, it took us, we didn't think of that when we were shooting it. We thought of it in post. Mm. And thankfully, from a visual effects standpoint, we were able to, to pull it off. You've seen Hedwig in The Angry Inch? I have. That them coming together actually kind of reminded me of the two people split. Yeah. And then it's like they together are, they're broken, but together they're whole. Again. That was the point. You know, yeah. that was, I, you know, when we, I have photos from rehearsal where they first got into that position and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so cool. You know, the idea that these sort of two halves are now a whole in mm -hmm. a way and they're whole from, from what they've done and been through was really moving, you know, and, and also Steven, seeing Steven Weber wrapped in green screen. Uh, weird green screen things and diaper was also fun. Yeah, uh, very very audition. Yes, totally. Audition. Yeah, yeah audition is one of those movies where you're like you cannot. It's one of my favorite movies. It's it's a remarkable remarkable movie. I remember I met with Kevin Bacon like ten years ago. And he's like, I want to remake audition for America, and I'm like, you want to go there? He's like, I want to go there. I'm like, no one's gonna find answers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to find answers? <laughs> Uh, but I, that audition is one of the few movies I've ever covered my eyes. <laughs> I, 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 I can watch almost anything and certainly like just gore. I don't have a problem with that one. I had to cover my eyes. Yeah, it's a that pretty help inspire me. Want to go into acupuncture now in acupuncture school. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Didn't actually, but yeah, I am. <laughs> but you know, again, it's a movie in which the, the, the first half of that film, you're thinking you're watching a romantic comedy. I had no clue. I was like, why is people were like, you gotta watch this horror movie. I'm like, did I get the right movie? Like, you can't believe it. And then suddenly there's that shot where she's on the phone and in the background, there's see someone struggling in a bag and you're like, yeah. oh, <laughs> this shit is going to get good really fast. <laughs> you know, speaking of movies that change direction, I think you want to go on a shift into talking about possession. Sure. Which <laughs> it sure does. So, um, we always ask, we always ask our guests to pick a horror movie that most people have not seen. And we all watch it and we'll talk about it. So you chose Possession from 1981 and none of us had seen that, right? No. no. I actually had seen it twice. No, I'd seen it referenced twice in film school as part of a montage of like, here's how you can have emotion uh, externalized in film. And it was that scene of them having the fight in the street and then the car crashes. Mm -hmm. And then I was at CineFamily and they showed a trailer for it that they said they had like a reprint of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I was familiar with it. But I, I, I definitely heard, I heard of it, it. Yeah. if I yeah. just never seen it. And as I was watching it, I was like, this is exactly what I would expect from the director of The Perfection. <laughs> <laughs> I take that as a huge compliment. <laughs> I, again, for the first 30 minutes, I was like, is this a horror movie? I, what's going on, right? Um, but holy shit, good pick. I this, loved it so yeah. much. It's a bonkers movie. <laughs> yes, and I had not seen it. And I was being interviewed by a journalist like five years ago. And she, she was like, have you seen Possession? And I'm like, I haven't. She's like, you just have to see it. And I tracked it down and I saw it. I'm like, what is this movie? And now I've seen it like four times and I show people it because you have to share this movie. Yeah. It's truly incredible, both filmmaking wise and acting wise. It is it is a bonkers, bonkers out there movie about divorce and about horror. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, I still don't understand it. I mean, I kind of understand it, but I still don't understand it. So, so I, I, I watched it twice. <laughs> 
I watched it twice, and then I found the director's commentary on really? YouTube. Oh, yeah. I want... so it was, it was just the audio, right? So I took that down from YouTube, and I laid that under the, the movie so I could watch it with the commentary. And it must have helped a lot. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so uh, Andre Zulowski, yeah, he describes it as a love story. Yeah. Ultimately, it's a love story. And it is rife with visual metaphor. It's rife with philosophy. It's rife with, uh, you know, religious metaphor as well. And I kind of get it. And here's here before I watch the director's commentary, this is the thing that opened the movie up for me is I you can tell a lot about the movie from the first shot and the last shot, mm. it, not the first shot. The first shot is of the Berlin Wall uh, and this train going by it. Uh, the second shot is a crucifix for Bunt Burnt Lucer. And I was like, who's who is that? Why is this important? I Googled it. He was a kid who lived in a school on the in East Berlin and he went away for summer break or spring break or whatever. And when he came back, they had built the wall. And he, his dad was from West Berlin. He was from East Berlin and his mom was from East Berlin. And he basically didn't want to be trapped there. He wanted to go back to his dad, got up on the wall, ran across it, was chased by police and military. He ended up jumping off the wall, missed the fireman's net and died. Oh, wow. And that's, that's the second shot of the movie. And I'm like, that's what the movie's about. This is why it's in Berlin because it is about Andrzej Zalowski made this movie right after getting a divorce. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie is about a couple and there are doppelgangers who represent both the good and evil parts of themselves. And you are at once both of those things as you go through a relationship and as you are trying to understand the other person and you love a person so much and if you haven't been so madly in love with somebody that you do self-destructive things or like are willing to walk that path of madness with them you probably won't fully understand this movie but i have (laughs) um and you you watch yourself sacrifice yourself and who you think you are for something that is ultimately not good for you. And so that's why this movie is about and had to take place in Berlin during uh, the wall, the, the Cold War, because it is about these two things that should be united, a marriage, a husband and wife, East and West Berlin, but aren't because they are two separate things that can't know each other. That's what the movie's about. Did he say that or you're, you're saying that? That's my interpretation and partly <laughs> no, what he said. No, I think said. it makes enormous it make ma- it makes, it makes a lot of sense. For people who haven't seen it, yeah, I was gonna say, it maybe. doesn't quite... The movie is... At first you're like, is this a spy film? Yeah. And then you realize that it's, okay, well, it's a divorce drama... And then you think, well, it's just about someone going crazy. But then you're like, is more? Th- are they both going crazy? Mm-hmm. And then there's this monster that appears and there's insanity. But it is a horror movie because there are real moments of ho- oh, yeah. there are real moments of of horror in it. I mean, especially near the end when this creature is fucking Isabella Johnny. Yeah, I mean, it's like porn, it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> And her performance is 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 spectacular. Oh, yeah. The sequence where she like loses her mind in the subway mm-hmm. is really one of the great scenes I think ever filmed. It yeah. is like it, from a, both an acting and filmmaking standpoint, you can't imagine they did a second take. You know, no. you're just yeah. like that's it. They went to dinner after that, or they went to the bar. Like they could not have. It was she gave it all. She just gave herself. But you are disturbed by the film like a good horror movie is. It it is about something like a good horror movie is. And it's trippy and weird in a way that felt like a like an early David Lynch film. Mm -hmm. Totally. And like like a David Lynch film, his movies have this sense of dread about them. They just hang over them. And this hangs this film has that. It also has like real moments of 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 humor. 
the 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 husband her uh, sort of the uh the 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 new the, her new lover mm-hmm. is Yo, he's, he's hilarious, hilarious. yeah and and th- so there's like a lot of stuff there it's it, it it's it's not an easy movie but if you can figure out a way to see it it's certainly interesting it's everything yeah, yeah. it's it's like marriage story if scarlett johansson started having sex with a tentacle monster by the way would it help that film <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this reminded I, me a lot of the brood actually yeah it definitely has Vibes, some Cronenberg vibes. They're yeah. definitely Cronenberg vibes. Yeah. yeah, it's um. So I assume we we all watch the the full length. Yes. Director's yes. cut, right? Because uh, the full runtime is about two hours, right? But when it was released in eighty one in the U S, it was heavily edited. Like, I think they cut out like at almost an hour of it. Yeah. I can only imagine how That's terrible so that was. But it's not even cutting. They completely apparently reordered sequences. They added different music and visual effects. I'd like the music to see was it. awesome. I, I'm I know. curious to watch the I'd like version. to see it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what were they... I mean, I guess if you're a distributor and you're looking at that movie and you're trying for any commercial audience, it's not exactly a commercial movie, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine what they created was. And also, <laughs> it's a masterpiece and that director... You know, my God, what a what a work of art! His camera work, his the sets are great. You really feel like that apartment is great. It's just it's just interesting. And there's a Polanski level too of dread in that film Definitely. too. Yeah, although it's it's bonker. It's more bonkers in a way than anything Polanski. Yeah, has. I think one of the, the strangest details about the movie is that the creature was designed by Carlo Rambaldi. Yeah, yeah, which is like, did and then he, he just did ET the next yeah. year, yeah. <laughs> going from like the most lovable, beautiful space yeah. alien, and coming from this like really weird ass creature, which. You're like, what is happening? Yeah. It, he did so, Alien, too. Oh, yeah. He, he did. did. And he did Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I actually found a blog that was talking about how the creature in Possession was probably influenced by a different Giger piece. Interesting. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very sexual. And uh, it's very interesting to hear the director's commentary because he talks about two his two regrets of the movie are... Because they hired Carlo Rimbaldi, uh, Carlo at this point was Italian, but he was working in the Hollywood system. So he was used to more time and more money and whatever. And in that subway scene, which is a miscarriage scene, mm-hmm. she is supposed to give birth to a thing that becomes the creature, oh. but they didn't have it. Oh. It wasn't done. So they had to shoot. And so you have this sequence where she's, it ends with her like bleeding and milk's coming out of her and she's crying. And stuff. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, that scene is awesome. It's so powerful. But I had no idea what was happening. I was wondering yeah. if that was choreographed. Do you think she was just like, it almost looked like interpretive dance. It did. It felt like yeah. a dance. Yeah. Uh, well, she has a dance background. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So. I mean, her whole body moved like a dancer. I'm sure it was thought about because you have, at a certain point, like you got to keep it in focus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, especially back in the day when they weren't, you know, you couldn't like watch a monitor and keep it in focus. Right. Like now, the difference between now and 10 years ago on, on a set, you know, everything had to be measured and you couldn't, ju- 10 years ago, and now they kind of just wing it. Yeah. But I, I, that must have been talked about. But the the, the scene is so um, crazy. She's so crazy that you kind of feel like, it was just completely improvised yeah. because how do you how do you get to that mental state and also still hit any marks or whatever? Right. She's they may have also just been like, go for it, we'll figure it out. But <laughs> whatever the case is, it's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that you can say action and then the actor goes into a shamanic trance. Yeah. <laughs> I think she was quoted as saying, this is not a direct quote, but essentially after seeing the finished film, she said, like, no one should like, I don't know how you got me to bear my soul, but like 
I read no that. One, yeah. Right? Like, no one should be able to get such a performance out of someone. And I literally have no idea. That scene, it honestly looks like she's actually losing her mind. I read he said he took days working the actors up into a trance. Like, it was some, like, Polish method. That's, that, <laughs> that, makes, that makes sense. The Polish method. <laughs> no, it does. It does. But they must have clearly trusted him in some way. And, you know, being a director is all about getting the trust of your crew and your cast. And if you can get their trust, they'll give everything to you. But not every actor is able to get to a place like that, you know, and she clearly was able to, and I'm sure she was, you know, not the same after. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he said in multiple interviews, um, I don't know if this is true, but he said it twice uh, from what I could find that after she saw, she didn't watch any of the dailies, which I could understand. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that after she saw the movie, she actually attempted suicide. Really? What? Yeah. Wow. That she took a G2 razor, like a safety razor to her wrist. So it's like, it, thankfully, she survived. But it was like not as mortally wounding as it could be. Wow. But she's somebody, his his uh, estimation of her was that she was somebody who is very vain and very in her own world. And so like being confronted with that level of disgust. I mean, like, she was still gorgeous. Yeah, she was amazing. She's, yeah, gorgeous. she's gorgeous. She's frightening. But that's very interesting. I mean, yeah. it, it's interesting also because it's 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 the world we're in right now. This the the way directors have historically directed the could not happen today because we're 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 a, we're better as a society and more aware of, of abuses going on. Certainly in the film community, there's major major movement about safe sets both from from sexual harassment but also from harassment in general and from would a director have the freedom to get that sort of performance in a way now or would it be called um exploitative and that's interesting it'd be interesting to talk to Isabella Johnny about it like because because she went to a place I mean no one should be fucking trying to kill themselves after a film yeah. set right. you know like yeah. the, there's nothing about that 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 is good right but at the same time what was caught on film was indelible like anyone who's ever seen that movie will never forget it you know that's interesting too (laughs) you know like where are the lines that that are there that we're dealing with when you're dealing with human beings and how you treat them right well his he actually said of that in one of another interview i watched where they said somebody today might say to you this was like in the early 2000s um what right do you have a director to do that to an actor? Mm. And he said, what right does an actor have to get t- paid $10 million to play? Right. <laughs> I haven't told them to bear their souls and they're going to bear their souls. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Can't you? Sounds like a pleasant man to work yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, for those listening who don't actually know much about the movie, right? So it's, it stars Sam Neill. Mm-hmm. Early Sam Neill, he's a hunk in this movie. I mean, I've always been a Sam Neill fan, but I've never seen him that young. Yeah, so he's like, super oh, young. Like, yeah. But yeah, I was like, he. I guess he's very attractive. And so you... He is. No, he's yes. a snack. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's both... Film, you'd film fuck him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frame fuck him. Frame fuck him. Frame fuck him. But it's just like him and his marriage falling apart for maybe half an hour, right? Maybe yeah. more. Yeah. Just like him screaming at his wife. Uh, and it's not until you get to the scene where like she takes... um. What, what is it, an electric oh, electric car? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you like, knew the second that came out. That which, <laughs> if you like that, you're really going to like Evil Dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she just like starts like, yeah, the minute that you introduce one of those into a movie, like someone's using that, that yeah. not on a turkey. And she just like starts cutting her neck with it. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit. Now we're picking up steam, right? Yeah. And then he just starts like cutting his arm. In a bunch of places. Yeah. But I think the, mo- the moment that 
which just really fucking blew my mind is when he finally tracks her down to her apartment, her like weird empty apartment. Or he doesn't go there first. It's um private detective. The private in- the detective. The most least smooth private the detective. Worst, <laughs> least, the worst private detective <laughs> in history. He's like, tripping over stuff. He's really trailing her like eight chasing steps her. behind her. Mr. Magoo he's, chases her. Yeah. He thinks he's like auditioning for the Pink Panther. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, this guy got a job as a PI. Like. Yeah. Well, he we find out he married the head of the PI firm. So. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little he, nepotism. He gets there and she's he says I need to come in and like check the windows because something you know I'm the window checker for the apartment building. <laughs> she's like okay, and then he just like walks by this room and glances in and there's this slithery, bloody, upright tentacle monster. And I like leaned forward. I was like, wait, excuse me, like, <laughs> what's happening? And that. I, like, again, we talked about the, the bona fides of the creature effects creator. It just looks so good. Mm-hmm. And, like, from there, it just continues to get more bonkers. Like, I can't even really describe the plot. It's like, one by one, people get lured it's, to the It's apartment. a movie that is almost, it's ridiculous to try to describe the plot. It's yeah. like, you should see this movie if you're interested in, like, crazy bonker films. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly, you know, and it's extremely well done. You know, it's not, it's, it. The, the, even though some of the acting is weird and some of the choices are weird, the filmmaker knows what he's doing. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel like a low budget. You know, sometimes there's movies that are just, they're, they're low, low budget isn't a problem, but they, you feel like the, the amateurs, amateurness of it this is not the case here it's a really interesting provocative fucked up movie no it's clearly made by a master right just the way yeah the way it's shot the way the scenes have that quiet tension over them like even when nothing bad is happening you're like something bad is coming like and then yeah the german boyfriend so she's like also (laughs) she she has a boyfriend this guy heinrich right he's so brilliant he's his it's a brilliant comic performance it's so crazy Starts doing kung fu on yeah. the husband. Yeah, the husband Samuel shows up and he's like, "You're sleeping with my wife." He's like, uh, "Yes, this is accurate." And you're sleeping with her. I'm sleeping with her. We, this is the way it is. He's so laid back about the whole thing. He's an odd character, but he's accepting. Of he's like, "I can be friends with you, ex-husband. It's no problem." Yeah, you know. But Sam Neil cannot handle it. He can't. Sam Neil. I mean, when you read that it's a movie about divorce, it makes complete sense because it's also a movie about jealousy and inadequacy and and failure and uh, you know it's it's a lot it's a lot of things if you've ever been in a relationship you can relate to some of this movie yeah uh it's it's also i think if you go in and you hate this movie you're correct yes if you go and you love this movie you're also correct yeah Yeah. it's impressionism yes it's like an art film but it's not it's but it doesn't it's not an art film but but you could treat it as an art film it is it's a piece of art but it's also like a monster movie and a fucking scary weird like other type of movie yeah it does really walk a lot of different lines. I, th- I found this such an interesting choice that you chose this because I actually do see, once he described it as a love story, I actually saw certain parallels with the perfection where it's like, oh, this is about like the dissolution of a relationship. Whereas like your movie's the opposite of yeah. it. It's like through pain, people find commonality and kinship. Through this, it's like through pain, you lose yourself and you ultimately die. And then apocalypse <laughs> happens. It does. It happens. Yeah. Apocalypse does happen. <laughs> Um, you know, there's definitely, you know, it's movies I'm attracted to have 
um, wear, wear their emotion on their sleeve in some capacity. And I thought with the perfection, I really wanted these two women to be together. They're, they, I love, we love them as characters, you know, they're deeply flawed. Certainly Alison Williams' character is really fucked up, but at the same time, she's doing an act, this is her act of love. Mm-hmm. It may not be what everyone else would do, but it's her way of communicating because she's not fully playing with a full deck of cards, but she loves this woman and she wants to save her and she doesn't know any other way. And mm. it's very interesting. People are very much connected to their relationship, but we have to connect to characters in movies, whether it's Evil Dead or whatever. There's got to be people who are, we care about and there has to be some understanding of them as human beings. It's like, that's what 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 any art is. Even a painting, you have to connect to it somehow emotionally. And if you're not trying for that or you're not aware of that, then then I'm I don't then I'm bored with your movie, you know, in some strange way. Even if it's not a love story, I wanna I wanna feel that these people are real and and I have to care about them in some capacity. Even if they're all awful people, I still want to care about them. You have to find a humanity in them. So Yeah. And I think it actually goes to show you uh that honesty and real characters that are doing something, you can relate to that, even if the story doesn't make a lick of fucking yeah, sense in the case right. of possession. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah, I'm always I'm always saying that like when we say like a movie is bad, it's it's usually either because like a plot thing doesn't make sense, or we do not find the people believable. Right. And therefore we can't relate to them and we check out. Um but if yeah, if you if you believe the people are genuinely feeling what they're feeling, you'll go along for the ride. A, a thousand percent. And also if you feel like the filmmaker knows what he or she is doing. I I, I I talk about this, the first five minutes of a movie, you have to give the audience a confidence level in the storytelling. Because if you do, it's a subliminal thing, but if you feel like, if in the first five or 10 minutes, you see some stuff that are that's bad, some bad acting, or some stupid thing that happens, or that one, you're like, I don't know if I wanna go in this world. But if in the first five or 10 minutes, you can seduce an audience into believing that you're, you know what you're doing. They'll go crazy places mm-hmm. with you because it, and it, it's much like meeting a human being. If if in the first five minutes something about them is weird, you're like, I don't know if I really want <laughs> yeah. to to spend any more time with them. But if there's a humanity to them, you're like, well, maybe I want to become their friend or at least know what they're thinking. So for for me, when I'm doing a movie, I'm so conscious of the first few scenes. I'm so conscious of how you start a movie, how the credits happen, how the music happens, how the mix goes. Like all of those things are like deeply key to, I mean, there was talk when we, the opening of The Perfection, Alison Williams is sitting in the room with her dead grandmother, dead mother. And there was a lot of discussion. Should we cut the scene? Is it necessary? Should we just start the movie in China? And I was like, no, we're starting with this scene and we're just, we're, we, I want I want this quiet. I want this weirdness. I want that lady's face without her, her blinking. I want, I want, I want everyone to understand that this movie will have a lot of different things. And you can handle a minute where not a lot happens because it's going to pay off eventually. You'll refer to that throughout the film. And, and. And I knew that that in a way, just starting like that for for people who like movies would hopefully be like, okay, well, this filmmaker at least knows what he's doing. So now, and there's these split diopter shots, which mm-hmm. we did throughout the film, and like all of this stuff would set a good a good tone for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I love that De Palma look. 
Oh, yeah. It's so good. I mean, I De Palma is like one of my favorite directors. Dressed to Kill is one of my favorite movies so ever. I think yeah. I think it's his best movie. And it's one of, if I had to do a top 10 of all time, I would be on it. Oh, I mean, wow. I, I just think it's it's good uh, as good a movie as you can get. Mm-hmm. Politically now, you, there's some issues with this movie because of the uh, transsexual, the way they're treating yeah. stuff. But at the time, it was it was what it was but the filmmaking is extraordinary and his he 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 takes a what is a b movie and makes it feel like an a movie by the the eloquence of his filmmaking the music the sequence in the museum with angie dickinson and that guy it's it's a ballet it's beautiful it's just really a cinematic masterpiece and when we started talking about this film i was like well de palma is able to take exploitative elements and make them feel elevated and certainly there's elements in the perfection that could be exploitative done the wrong way. Mm-hmm. You know, I want people to be turned on and I want it to be sexy in the beginning, but I don't want it to feel like it's just like a Cinemax movie. Mm-hmm. I want it to have some element. And I love the idea of a spit diapter because you're, you can really feel like you're in a person's head. If you're, if you got someone in the foreground and someone in the background in both in focus, it fucks with your brain because it's not the way we are used to looking at things. Mm-hmm. And also it allows us to feel like we're in both people's heads. Mm-hmm. And and I thought it'd be cool. I mean, there, every time we did a split diopter shot, I was super happy. You know, I was like, look at this. This, this is just so interesting, mm-hmm. you know? And lately I've been seeing it sort of cinematically being used a little bit more. Um, it's sort of having a resurgence, this sort of yeah. split diopter stuff. But De Palma was the master of it and, and certainly Dress to Kill and Blowout, both are too, yeah. Yeah. those two are my favorite of his movies. I know people mm-hmm. love Carrie and they love Scarface and love other things, but to me, uh, I love that De Palma documentary. Also, did you guys mm-hmm. see that? Yeah. It's really yeah, good. It. It's on Netflix. You should see it. It's just him talk, just him talking about his movies. I, I could have watched it for like 19 hours. <laughs> What's a split diopter? It basically shifts the focus so you can have something in the foreground and focus and something in the background and focus. Oh, okay. So in 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 The Perfection, there's a few shots where you're like, Allison is in focus and Logan's in focus. But normally only one of them could be in focus because oh. if I'm here and someone else is way back there, which one are you going to put in focus? But a okay. split diopter is literally something you put onto the lens and it allows you to keep both things oh, in awesome. focus. But it's it's not used all the time because it it is... It's noticeable in a way, and most directors don't want you to notice them. Mm. They they want you to be lost in the movie. This wasn't about noticing me, but it was about the, the the level of storytelling. I also thought that people who loved De Palma films would see the homage to it, you know, and it made sense for this film. Yeah, it is interesting because it's like as soon as you kind of show the cards, if you will, of the magic trick, it either has the effect of disturbing somebody from the story. Yeah. Or you're grabbing them by the collar and shaking them and be like, look at this. That's right. Yeah. But also, like, again, the same thing of cutting to red or any uh, or shaking the film is like, what can you do to keep an audience interested? Mm-hmm. You know, again, we didn't have a lot of money. We shot the movie in 24 days. There's not like wow. big explosions. Wow. It was it's, you know, what are we going to do to keep people interested? And why are they why are they uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. You know, why why is suddenly this frame or this sequence making you a little uncomfortable or a little unnerved? That's cool. You know, yeah. that's part of what 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 it's about. Yeah. Speaking of uncomfortable, you said that you've shown <laughs> possession to multiple people. Yes. <laughs> what, what are their responses? I'm curious. You know, almost everyone finishes in like, well, it makes sense, Richard, that you would show us this. <laughs> 
It's kind of a compliment. Yeah, I, but you know, it's just, it's it's like, who am I? Like, if you want to know who I am, this the films I love is a great way of you know, especially we all communicate that way. Like, I love this. This is this is an expression of me because I love this. And and for me, it was like I want. I wish I could share that. I wish I I wish I was Quentin Tarantino and owned the New Beverly because I would screen that movie every week. Mm-hmm. You know, I would want as many people to see it as possible. Uh, I think they're releasing like a brand new Blu-ray set of Possession later this oh, that year. Really That's happy. exciting. So because it's been unavailable for a long time. Uh, yeah, I have like some. Such a shame. Yeah. How did you guys? And did you see it on YouTube? Where did you see it? We have our ways. Because I got, <laughs> I got like an illegal. I got someone gave me a dupe of a dupe of a dupe. That's yeah. how I. That's yeah. how I got something it. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was so crushed down. I'd love to see it. Yeah. I, can you imagine after. a beautiful print of that? Yeah. Would be amazing. The internet is dark and full of movies. <laughs> yes. You can see anything you want, and yeah. some things you don't want to see. Yeah. But like. I mean, yeah, I thought I really thought this would be, be easily acquired. You know, like I thought I would just go on Amazon and rent no, it. Or no, even even trying to buy a disc of it is difficult. People want like upwards of fifty bucks for like a yeah. DVD. But no, if if you are interested in watching this movie, wait a couple months. There, like like a, the the full set is coming with probably the director's commentary and all of that. And I, I maybe they'll show the maybe they'll also include the shorter version. I was, yeah, that would oh, be amazing. I would like to see both. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It'd be really fascinating just to see how they tried to tell that story. Right, and what editor they, you know, who was the guy or girl they hired? Here's this wackadoodle movie, this totally bonkers movie. Make this, instead of two hours, make this, you know, 75 minutes, as linear as you can, and 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 for, for as m- many people to watch as possible, and sitting in some edit room in New York, like, cutting cutting yeah. out all this interesting stuff, yeah. and, like, what that must have been like. I want to yeah. find that person. That's fascinating. There's the guy that keeps saying, like, oh, our subject is wearing pink socks, and then... Like it shows you his pink yeah. socks later. Like, just, like, weird stuff like that that don't mean anything. There's yeah. just so many random... It's idiosyncratic, which is, you know, it's always the fear of any filmmaker who's idiosyncratic that the, a horrible producer is going to get in their way. You know, yeah. this. I'm sure Zulowski couldn't believe that this movie that he made was going to screen now. In, and he made it in English yeah. to reach an American audience. And some fucking hack sitting in a room recut his film i mean like that is you work on something for years of your life the idea of that is all right i'll tell you one quick story i know we have to finish but uh (laughs) i just told it the other night and i hadn't told it in a while but so i made the movie the matador with pierce brosnan and it it premiered at sundance and then we sold it at sundance to harvey weinstein who had just sold miramax and was starting the weinstein company I'd never met him before at all. But The Matador, I knew was going to change my career. I knew that it was really good. I knew that it had a big movie star in it. I knew that people were going to see it. And I was very protective of it. I was like, no one is going to... I didn't have Final Cut. I wasn't the producer. But I ha- it was my cut that screened at Sundance. And I was like, no one is going to fuck this movie. So we screen it. And now we've got a bunch of offers in to buy it. And at the time before, obviously way before this whole Me Too thing, but... Back then, Harvey was known as Harvey Scissorhands because he would recut everyone's movies. This is what he was famous for. And he recut biggest directors to the smallest directors. He just, this is what he did. So his company was offering the most money for the movie. And I knew that the people who financed the film were going to say yes to it because why would you not? A, he's a big producer, a big distributor, and B, it's a lot of money. But I was terrified about what he was going to do in my movie. And the movie, if you haven't seen it, Pierce Brosnan plays like a hitman who's having a nervous breakdown. And we made it in Mexico. So right before they closed the deal, I said, can you please 
let me talk to Harvey. Harvey was in New York. I'm like, please let me take talk to Harvey Weinstein, who I'd never met in my life. Like, I just need to talk to him. And they're like, why? I'm like, I just want to hear that he loves the movie. I want to hear from him that he loves the movie and whatever. So I he calls me. I'm on, I remember I'm standing on the street at Sundance, it's snowing, and on the phone is like, hey, this is this is Harvey Weinstein. And I'm like, <laughs> Hey Harvey, how are you? He's like, I'm fine, fine. I love your movie. It's great. We're gonna win a, we're gonna win a lot of golden gloves. I'm like, okay, Harvey, thank you. <laughs> And I said to him, I want you to know something, Harvey. This movie is about a hitman. When I was in Mexico City, I met a real hitman. And he cost $150 in Mexico to kill someone. Wow. Which is less money than the ticket I will spend to send him to New York if you recut my movie. <laughs> and it was the first movie in eight years he didn't recut. Oh, wow. my God. Wow, that's well done. Yeah. Well, I was just, I mean, I'm not, this is not really my personality, but I'm very protective of my work. And I'm like, I know he's a bully. I'm just going to like, he doesn't know me. How does he know? Not know I'm going to spend a (laughs) hundred. And also a hundred dollars is not really that much money. Like, you you know, it's like struggling independent filmmaker. You can still find a hundred dollars. That that reminds me in the director's commentary. um, uh, Isabel in possession was part of sort of on the outs because uh, she's known as a prima donna. She's only like 25, but already like burned a lot of bridges and was almost uncastable. So when he went to her, he said like, you're going to be in my movie. You're going to win a lot of awards. I'm going to resurrect your career. And she did. Yes. Um, but he said, she, for the most part, she was totally down to play and did whatever. But there was one day where she was in the the, the chair, like the, the makeup chair and refused to get out. And he came in and he said, what happened? She said, oh, whatever. And like the, the makeup person said they didn't like my hair. And he's like, Listen to me closely. You are going to be on set in five minutes. Or I'm going to fucking kill you. And then he walked away. What? And then she just showed up. And then he's like, I don't know why she was so upset after. Yeah, I don't know why she tried to kill herself after. Yeah. Uh, nothing to do with me. Yeah. Uh, so but, strange. The director's just being I need to very listen to protective. this director's commentary. Yeah, really. Well, I hope it's on that new DVD. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, like, you are one of probably only 40 people to say, I'm going to send a hitman for you, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I bet there's some people would have appreciated if I actually had sent it. Yeah. 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 People listening to this podcast, someone is buying a ticket to Mexico right now. Like 150 bucks. Like yeah. it might have it might be two twenty five. Yeah, it's probably got another. Yeah, thing. that was ten years ago. They might have a group on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Can you tell us what you're working on next? What's what's next up for you? Um, I have. Uh, I'm someone who doesn't like to talk about what he's working it's, on. That's totally right. Most people don't. It's, I always like to ask. No, I'm glad you asked. It's it's hard. It, you know, I'm I'm about to start working on a m- mini series that's going to be really interesting, but it, I can't talk about it. Yeah. But uh, that I I did not create, but I'm going to be one of the directors on it and producer on it, and it's going to be very interesting and take the next eight months. Uh-huh. And then I'm writing a new movie with Eric and Nicole. Oh, yeah. cool! Which we're really psyched about. And there's just a, like a lot of things that, you know, it's, I have to have a lot of plates spinning because it's so hard to get anything made or done. Yeah. So you have to kind of keep, keep at it. You know, I feel like that's part of the job of a filmmaker is to be trying as a writer to try and produce as much as I can. And hopefully one of them will make sense and fall into <laughs> place and get financed through the thing. So, but, you know, I'm trying to keep busy and, you know, still have time to go to the movies. Yeah. <laughs> anything else you want to plug that you can plug? 
<laughs> Not really. Oh, okay. Well, Perfection <laughs> on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, it's on Netflix. You should see it. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you haven't and you listen to this whole episode, you sh- you still should watch you it. You absolutely yeah. should, and you should watch Possession. Possession. Not the Possession. Yeah. Possession. There are many different movies with Possession. Yeah. In. Don't type in the because a bunch of other stuff will come up. But uh, Richard, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, this, this is so, so fun. Great. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, thank guys. So uh, yeah, I guess we're gonna call it. Everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Hey, thanks for listening to the episode. If you could uh, like, subscribe, and share this episode, that'd be great. If you want to share your feedback with us, we can be reached at podforsakenpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah!